0: Hello friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is David Robson. He's an award-winning science writer specializing in the extremes of the human brain, body, and behavior. Our expectations have a profound effect on the outcomes that we get in life. This isn't positive vibes from the secret. This is one of the most replicable, robust effects that impacts pretty much everything that we care about to do with our lives and our health. Expect to learn how people with no gluten intolerance can have a gluten reaction after eating a meal with no gluten in it, why the drones at Gatwick were probably imagined, why French people eat worse than Americans but live longer, how your thoughts are more important than your genes when it comes to athletic performance, and much more. This book and David's work about the expectation effect has been completely consuming me since I had this conversation with him. I've spoken about it on a bunch of other podcasts that I've guested on. Every so often I do a podcast that completely sort of changes my view around something that we're all very familiar with, how we frame events and the sort of impact that this has. And uh, this is a real, a very, very shocking episode in the nicest way possible. There is so much to take away from today. I really hope that you enjoy it. It's it's genuinely changed my worldview on a lot of things. Uh, So if you do enjoy it, then share it with a friend. This can help a lot of people. And if nothing else, it's really, really interesting. So yes, make sure that you do sit down and take some notes, or at the very least, focus. Okay. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Let's Get Checked. Recent studies have shown that men's testosterone levels are dropping substantially since the 1980s at about an average of 1% per year. Low testosterone can have all sorts of health effects on men, can cause you to lose muscle mass in your body, affect your mood, your memory, and even your sex drive. Everyone's talking about low T men at the moment, and low testosterone is more common as you get older, but it can affect men of any age. So today's sponsor, Let's Get Checked, are a worldwide leader in at-home testing kits and their male hormone tests allow you to easily test your testosterone levels at home. You can order a testing kit that will be delivered to you in discreet packaging with next day delivery. Once your sample arrives in the laboratory, confidential results will be available from your secure online account within two to five days. These results are reviewed by a clinician and a member of the Let's Get Check nursing team may call you to review your results as well. Let's Get Check laboratories are CLIA approved and CAP accredited, which are the highest ranking levels of accreditation. So if you want to test your hormone levels without having to leave your home, you can visit trylgc.com slash modern to get 30% off your test. That's trylgc.com slash modern you can choose us or uk at the top of the main page based on where you are then the code modern 30 at checkout i am really keen on trying to get people to understand their hormone profiles to make sure that their mood and their sex drive and their training and their muscle mass is all coming from a place which they understand and if you've got low testosterone you need to know about it and this is the easiest cheapest and most convenient way to do it try dot com slash modern modern 30 for 30% off your at-home test. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Crafted London. They are the number one men's jewellery brand in the world. Literally, the market leader. So, if you are looking for some new jewellery for yourself, or if you're looking to get someone a gift that needs to wear something a little bit cooler than they are at the moment, this is the perfect place to start. Their pieces are sweat-proof, waterproof, heat-proof, gym-proof, and come with custom designs in gold and silver. They do necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings and earrings. Anything that you would care to wear as a guy or by someone who is a guy to wear, they've got it. And most importantly, everything that they make comes with a lifetime guarantee. So no matter what happens, if anything happens, they will replace it for free at any point in the lifetime of the product. There's over half a million happy customers worldwide. I'm wearing their stuff all the time. It's really, really cool. It's a perfect price point. It's great. I I think that what they're doing in terms of making accessible, attractive men's jewellery is fantastic. And you can get 15% off everything site-wide, no matter where you are, US, UK, or anywhere else. Head to Bit.ly slash cdwisdom and the code MW15 at checkout will get you 15% off. Go and have a look at their entire range. There's tons of stuff in gold and silver, all of the different pieces. Bit.ly slash cdwisdom and the code MW15 at checkout. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by MyProtein. They are the number one sports supplement in the world for a reason. Their clear way is... The best thing that i've ever had and if you are looking for a new protein supplement this is the one for you if you're currently feeling bloated or uncomfortable or you get digestive discomfort or you just feel lethargic after you've had a protein shake switch to clearway and i bet that all of your problems are going to be fixed they even do a vegan version so if you're a vegan you can get in on the clearway action it's light and fruity and tastes like juice it's see-through so easy to drink that you can have it during a workout but it has as much protein in it as a normal protein shake. Plus, you already know what MyProtein does. They have the biggest range of sports supplements, creatine, all of their pre-workouts, their post-workouts, multivitamins, whatever it is that you're looking to get in terms of supplementation or accessories like bottles and shakers and bags or apparel like clothing, t-shirts, tops, leggings, shorts, whatever. Everything is available from there. And you can have a look at my super secret product page with everything that I use and recommend by going to bit.ly slash proteinwisdom. That's bit.ly protein L-Y proteinwisdom. That will enable my super secret discount, which is modern wisdom, all one word. It is the maximum discount that you can get on the site at any time. You don't need to try and find other codes or try and piece different deals together. It will always give you the best, cheapest discount that you can find. bit.ly slash wisdom and Modern Wisdom at checkout for the fattest discount that you can get. But now, please welcome David Robson. David Robson, welcome to the show yeah thanks so much for having me how did you get interested in the way that expectations can impact our lives
1: like i guess like as a medical writer i've kind of known about the placebo effect for ages um but then i just like over the last five years i've just seen like such an abundance of research that had kind of moved beyond like you know the effects in hospitals but to like all other areas of our lives so you know like um There is, you know, some great research on these kind of weird psychogenic illnesses that pass between people just through expectations. But then also, like research looking at the way our expectations shape our performance at the gym, like how we respond to sleep loss, even like how quickly we age. Um, And it was actually that finding I just thought, like, I have to write this book now because... It's like it's actually cutting people's lives by like seven and a half years. Like if you have this negative view of aging, if you see it as this kind of period of inevitable decline. And that just seems so profound. It felt like actually, you know, you could do a lot of good by telling this story, basically.
0: What's the difference between the expectation effect and the placebo effect?
1: So the placebo effect is like one type of expectation effect. And so that is like, um, I guess most people are familiar with it, but that's very much like if you have high expectations that a treatment is going to be effective, even if it's a dummy treatment, um, then you will see some kind of um, alleviation of your symptoms. Um, So that's been researched for like five decades, you know, like there's no longer any controversy over that. Um, But the expectation effect is kind of much more general. So this is looking at how we create self-fulfilling prophecies um, uh, from our beliefs through like various mechanisms. So changes to our behaviour, changes to our um perception and changes to our physiology
0: and that happens both positively and negatively right this isn't us just making things better we can also make things worse
1: yeah and i think that's how it often manifests in our lives like day to day is that when we have these kind of negative expectations we're like needlessly hampering our performance we're like kind of limiting our potential essentially so um so yeah a lot of what I write in the book is actually just like asking people to reassess those negative expectations and just kind of bring it up to something that's a bit more objective or open minded and even that can have a huge effect on your life.
0: The problem is we have a negativity bias right we have a, a leaning generally towards negativity we're vigilant for whatever might be lurking in the bushes of existence and now the, the expectation effect is something that we know about. That negativity bias bleeds into a reality negativity bias, right? We become a self-fulfilling prophecy of the fears that we had previously.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. So it's like the um, one of the researchers told me, and I totally believe this, that our expectations that we have today are kind of shaping our reality tomorrow. So, you know, like they are actually shaping the way we perceive the world, but also kind of Uh, physically what's happening to our bodies. Um, But like you said, we have this negativity bias. I think like in our culture, we often see like being pessimistic as being inherently more rational or kind of smarter, you know, smart to be cynical. But often we're just needlessly negative. Actually, our kind of pessimistic expectations are no more rational than if we were like a kind of Pollyanna figure who was always being like totally optimistic about everything, you know. So yeah, that's where I think we have to find that sweet spot where we're not like, raising our expectations to be kind of wishful thinking. But we're just kind of asking objectively, could I see this situation uh, kind of more positively, essentially?
0: You you looked at the expectation effect in diet, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's one of my favorite examples. Um, And like, this is another way I try to kind of differentiate the expectation effect from just like positive thinking, you know, like, bollocks like um, the secret where you kind of, You're told to just imagine yourself being like super skinny and like you will just become super skinny. Um, Like that's totally not going to happen. But what this scientific research shows is that it's much more about our kind of specific expectations of the food we're eating. Um, And so when we're kind of dieting, um, we're so focused on like the kind of sense of deprivation and like, you know, all the calories we're missing that that actually kind of sets up the body for starvation. So it does things like increases the levels of the hunger hormone ghrelin that stimulates appetite. Um, and ghrelin also kind of um slows your metabolism. So you burn fat more slowly, essentially. So if you're on a diet, you've got this mindset of deprivation. Um, you've got high levels of ghrelin that are kind of making you have hunger pangs and like reducing your metabolism. It's like a recipe for disaster. It's like going to make your diet so much harder um so yeah that was revelatory for me to just realize that actually you know very simply kind of the kind of packaging we see around our diet foods are actually changing the way our body responds to the food
0: is that language like low calorie snack and stuff like that
1: yeah all of that kind of thing and you know like they um the scientists did this kind of linguistic analysis of kind of diet foods and it's it's not just like focusing on the low calories it's also like they miss out on all of the vocabulary that might help you to get pleasure out of food. So, you know, like if you have a high fat food, it's going to be like um, luxurious, decadent, you know, like um, uh, you creamy, know, they're going to emphasize, yeah, creamy, yeah. tasty. They're going to focus on all of the kind of sensory aspects. If you have a diet food, it's like sensible, which is like such a bland, <laughs> horrible word. <laughs> and then like that actually changes your hormonal response to the food just by having that kind of language that sets you up to feel like you're depriving yourself.
0: Interesting. So there is a balance, I suppose, for marketers that are doing food marketing between the, I guess, the conversion in terms of whether people are going to pick it up and then the enjoyment or the effectiveness of whether or not it actually satiates people a bit more. What was the, yeah. didn't you look at something to do with French people? Aren't French people supposed to be really fat and they're not? <laughs>
1: yeah, right. Exactly. Because they eat a lot of food that's kind of high in saturated fats. Um so they should have higher levels of kind of cardiovascular disease um, because of this. And yet they don't. They actually, you know, they like um, have lower BMIs, but also just lower rates of heart attacks compared to like America and the UK, even though we eat like fewer saturated fats. Um, so that's kind of this mystery. But then you look at the French kind of whole attitude to eating and they just don't feel this kind of guilt around what they eat that we have in the UK or US. So um it's like there was this survey that asked um it was like word association and like what do you associate with cream cake and in France it was like celebration and in the UK it was guilt
0: regret Um, yeah
1: (laughs) yeah exactly and so the idea here is that actually if you're feeling like totally stressed about the food you're eating all the time and you're missing out on all of that pleasure that's like a major source of stress and we know that stress itself can kind of contribute to ill health so like you know day to day you're not going to notice the difference but over a lifetime it can help to explain the differences between those cultures in terms of the kind of illnesses that they experience.
0: What was that thing that you looked at to do with gluten and gluten intolerances?
1: Mm, Yeah, I mean, this maybe is a bit controversial. So there are some people that definitely have a gluten intolerance. There's just no question about that. It's like their body is responding to it. It's got a a true allergic reaction. Um, So I'm not questioning that. But like, I think recently we've seen a lot of media coverage where people don't have like a celiac disease, but they're just kind of gluten sensitive or wheat sensitive. So, you know, about 30 percent of people now report that. And it's, you know, that has kind of increased from a couple of percent to 30 percent in like 10 years. It's, it would be crazy if like our bodies were changing that quickly. Um And then so the scientists have just kind of done these experiments where they gave these people these foods that didn't contain any gluten or wheat, but they told them it did contain the gluten and wheat, and they still experienced all of the symptoms. So they were still having like the bloating or the diarrhea, like all of this um, stuff. So like that shows us that their symptoms aren't imagined. Like they really were experiencing them, but it's through an expectation effect. It's like the kind of opposite of the placebo effect It's like the expectation of that they will become ill makes them feel the symptoms. Um, and that probably can ex- explain the rise. Like the essentially all the media coverage about wheat sensitivity is kind of
0: making a lot of people ill. Wow. It's like a, <clears throat> a psychological contagion in a way. And if you're hearing a yeah. lot of news stories about this is how bad gluten is for you and this is how you're going to react and this is how you're going to respond and maybe you've got a friend who's got it as well. And it doesn't surprise me that that stuff happened, but it's so hilarious. It's such an interesting intersection, right? Because people don't have a gluten intolerance or they they um, might not have as severe of a gluten intolerance as their body is responding to. Yeah. However, they are suffering with the effects of a gluten intolerance. So it is it is not quite the same as a placebo effect, right? It's it's this it's in some sort of no man's land in between the two. They don't have the problem, but they do have the impact, but they don't have it for the reason that they thought that they did.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think actually like a lot of people find it quite offensive if you suggest it's kind of the origin is psychological rather than like purely biological. But actually, like I don't think that distinction makes sense anymore when we understand the mind-body connection because we know that like our expectations can change our physiology. So, you know, loads of other experiments have shown that like if you're expecting to kind of have a headache, that expectation then actually changes the release of like different chemicals in your brain that change the vasculature of of your brain. So it's actually like changing the pressure that causes the headache. So if you take a kind of tablet and you expect to have a headache, um, like it's not the biological action that's going to give you that headache, but you're still going to feel the pain and it's still actually caused a change, you know, within the brain itself. It's still, it's like the words are biologically active rather than the pill you're taking, essentially. And we're saying exactly the same thing with um, the wheat intolerance. It's like the expectation is biologically active. It's not the food you're eating that's actually causing that problem.
0: I think the reason, and I could uh, totally imagine if I had some uh, illness or allergy of some kind that I've been dealing with for a long time, and then somebody comes in and and says, well, this is potentially contributed to or worsened by your psychology, that makes you feel culpable. That makes Mm. you feel like it's your fault almost and like you're in control the reason that people like the idea of medicalizing or at least it makes them feel more secure is that by giving something a term by branding it as something it it kind of makes it feel more realistic more real more medicalized more scientific and probably a little bit more like um it's not their fault
1: yeah totally yeah and i I think like that's something that has been contrib- uh, contributed to by, like, the medical profession, in that, like, I think a lot of doctors have this kind of assumption, actually, that if something's psychogenic, it's kind of not real, it's imaginary, you know, they have kind of assumed it's kind of malingering, so often, like, doctors can be quite rude when they present this diagnosis that something's psychogenic in origin. Um, what that's, does psychogenic I mean? More upsetting. So that's just, like, if it's psychological in origin, essentially. So if it um comes from, like, the brain, not from, like, a biological direct biological action. Um, Yeah, and I mean, it's so damaging. And then like, so these people then feel very resistant to the diagnosis. They're not really going to be very positive about, say, having like a cognitive behavioral therapy to try to treat the psychogenic illness. So they're like stuck in this loop. It's actually much harder to treat them than it would be often to treat someone with a
0: purely biological illness. No way. So somebody that's got a psychogenic... Uh gluten intolerance is potentially more difficult to treat than somebody who has a biologically driven gluten intolerance that's that's yeah. so interesting
1: yeah it's crazy I mean, and because there's like loads of other psychogenic illnesses that are like even more severe so some what are people some have good psych- examples like some people have psychogenic blindness where they their brain has kind of fooled them into thinking that their eyes can't see. And then, so they actually can't see, like it's actually, their brain is just blocking that sensory information from being processed consciously. Um, and again, or paralysis even, like some people have like paralyzed limbs they are caused by like the expectation that it's been paralyzed somehow without a kind of biological damage, anatomical damage. Um, and for those people, yeah, like it's really difficult then to try to get them to respond to treatment because it feels so insulting and there's such stigma attached to that, even though the, it shouldn't be because actually, you know, all of us are kind of experiencing these expectation effects to a greater or lesser degree. Um, it's just like, we're, you know, they're having a more extreme reaction than most people.
0: One of the places that I noticed this in my own life was with fasting. So everybody knows the experience of being hungry and not having eaten. It's 2pm and you still haven't had any food in you or whatever. And you've got those hunger pangs. But after a bunch of different episodes with longevity doctors like Dr. David Sinclair and his colleagues, I realized that maybe that hunger signal is something that I'm actually seeking. Maybe that's something that's good for me. It's a hormesis stressor. It's going to activate telomeres and all of the other stuff that I can't remember. And that then reframed the experience of being hungry to me. I thought, actually, this is a signal that something's going right here. Like this is the input that I'm after and yeah okay it's not wildly enjoyable but it's not that bad just the sensation of being hungry without the narrative and the story around oh my god I need to eat my energy is going to be low blah 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 I actually find that my energy goes up while I'm hungry I find that I'm more alert I find that my thoughts are quicker and I think oh this is good for me this is something that I'm supposed to be doing and I'm going to look forward to having my food in an hour's time or whatever
1: yeah, I mean, that's just like what the expectation effect is all about, is this kind of process of reframing. Um, so it's not about denying the feelings. It's not like you're telling yourself, like, I'm not hungry, but you're just, you're reinterpreting those feelings and you're kind of telling yourself, like, based on the science that it's actually like a good thing for you. And so we see that with a lot of the other expectation effects that I discuss, like, um, when people are working out at the gym, you know like um some people really catastrophize like when they're kind of feeling tired like during an endurance exercise, and they they see it as a sign of that their own fitness is you know kind of really poor, that maybe they're going to suffer a heart attack or something um and what you want to do is just kind of change that interpretation and be like actually like you know no pain, no gain like if it's if i'm feeling uncomfortable that's when i'm doing my body like the most good um and you can see that when people do interpret that, like it changes a bunch of things in the body, but um, especially like it it kind of helps to encourage the release of the endogenous opioids that we have in the brain. So like the endorphins essentially that give you that runner's high. Like when you reinterpret your feelings during a workout and realise that actually like the feeling of pain can almost, almost be like a reward, you get those, like the release of those endorphins, it makes you feel good and it makes you want to come back to the gym afterwards, so... What yeah are, it's quite powerful
0: what are some of the examples of this being used in sports
1: yeah i mean there's like loads of anecdotal evidence of like um coaches kind of giving um telling their athletes that they're taking this kind of banned substance but they're actually just giving them an injection of like glucose or whatever <laughs> like um but because the athletes kind of believe they've taken this performance enhancer they do you know like they have much greater strength or endurance so You know, it's being used kind of, I think that's ethically dubious, like misleading the athletes and like getting them to feel that they're taking a banned substance is like, you know, um, definitely like some questions and alarm bells there. But I think more generally, like um, there's a lot of research just showing that you, a lot of the sports supplements that we take, like the legal ones, are also kind of benefiting from a placebo effect. So things like caffeine that we might take as a muscle stimulant. um, Actually, the research shows that if you give people decaf, but tell them that it's like high intensity caffeine, they like get a lot stronger. Um, and if you give them like proper, like high dose of caffeine and tell them that it's decaf, they actually get weaker because of that. You're so kidding. it's like, yeah, it's crazy. So actually, most of the benefits from that supplement is coming from our expectations, not from the chemical effects. Hit
0: the yeah. bed. So another implication here for um, marketers and general branding is. The story that you tell people around the things that they're taking largely determine their experiences of it. And I'm in Austin at the moment, and uh, there is a strong psychedelic community here. And I had, do you know Hamilton Morris, uh, Hamilton's pharmacopoeia guy who used to work for Vice? Ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. So long, stringy kind of chemist guy that goes and takes drugs all over the world. Um, I was talking to him about, Uh, Bufo Alvarius, which was the toad, psychedelic toad, and people used to sort of rub it on a piece of glass and then they scrape it off and then they smoke the toad venom. And he is adamant that you're able to recreate that chemically one-to-one. It is the same molecular structure. uh, And yet people still went about using the toad. And there is a whole story around the fact that it's sacred. And he had the exact same thought of what you're mentioning there with regards to the supplements that almost none of it is in fact (coughs) literally none of it is to do with the fact that it's come from a toad and everything is to do with the fact that there's this story around the fact that the toad is sacred and you go on a, a big walk to go and find them and you see them and you spend time with them and the same thing when people are talking about psychedelics set and setting those are the two things that you try and control. What's your intention coming into this? What's the experience been around this? If you're going away to do an ayahuasca retreat, you're fasting for days beforehand. You make sure that you don't swear. You're in this beautiful surrounding. It, you've got you know, indigenous music being played and you've got a headdress on and people are dousing you in flower petal water and stuff. What is this? It's priming. It's story. It's narrative. It's creating that expectation that something magical and positive is about to happen
1: yeah i mean that's totally it like the ritual is just so important there but it's like i almost find it surprising that anyone could think you could separate the two um because i would say yeah like in those experiences like maybe 80 percent of what people are feeling is going to be from the ritual from the story like you said uh from the setting and like a very small part is going to come from the drug i mean we see this in in medicine with like um People who are receiving morphine after an operation. Um, So they could receive that in their intravenous drip. It's just delivered automatically. Um, Or you can have a doctor give you an injection and tell you, you know, this is pain relief, you're gonna feel better. And actually, to get the same level of pain relief, um, you need twice as big a dose when it's the morphine is administered surreptitiously without the ritual of the doctor giving you that morphine. So it's like the placebo effect alone is like, yeah, like half of the power of morphine, which is quite
0: crazy. I remember reading a story in one of Johan Hari's books about a guy who had a magic electric wand thing in the 1800s or the 1900s. Do you know this story? And he used to wave it mm. over people, and then over time they took different things away. Do you know this? I don't, no, but okay, so yeah. These patients were catatonic for one reason or another. Maybe it was chronic pain or back pain or depression or something. And this guy said... I've created this special new device and I'm going to wave it over you and it's going to make everything better. And it was all complex and maybe it used electricity and it was wood wrapped in metal with wires and other stuff and used to wave it over people. And these people that had been catatonic for years had sometimes got up and started moving around. It's a miracle. And over time, I can't remember if it was this guy or if it was somebody else that was trying to disprove it or whatever, or, or stress test it, started recreated their own and started taking bits away from it so first they unplugged the electricity and then they removed the wires and then they took away the metal sheet and then they took away the wood and then it was just someone waving their hand over people (laughs) and saying the same thing and you end up with exactly the same outcome
1: yeah i mean it's incredible and so i think a lot of well like part of the placebo effect um is just that feeling that someone is kind of caring for you that can be quite powerful in itself. And we know that that can do things like um, reduce the inflammation that you feel within your body. So it's almost like um, if you're kind of feeling isolated and ill, your body's like sending loads of inflammatory markers, like that can kind of they attack pathogens by like brute force. Um, But when you know that you're being cared for, that you have kind of some kind of security, the body can like remove that inflammation and allow like the more specific parts of your immune system to kick into action. So like the production of antibodies. Um, So yeah, I feel like the healing ritual in itself is super important. And then on top of that, we have the specific expectations of what the treatment is going to kind of give us, like what benefits we're going to get. And then that can have more specific effects on like, you know, whether you have like pain relief, whether it like reduces your blood pressure, like all of that kind of stuff.
0: You said that our beliefs are more powerful than our genes when it comes to exercise why is that
1: yeah i mean um so there's this experiment it was just like a uh, the uh, the scientists like asked these people to come into the lab they gave them a genetic test um it was looking at the CREB uh Krebs one gene um so that's just uh we know that that is involved in like um uh, loads of things to do with like endurance exercise so kind of how efficiently your lungs kind of can uh, exchange the carbon dioxide for oxygen. Um, your like body temperature as you exercise. If you have like the bad variant, um, you just start to feel like hotter and more uncomfortable, like and a bit more sweaty as you exercise. So, you know, like it is important. But the scientists gave sham feedback to these participants. So they, you know, regardless of what they actually had, they told some like you have this amazing variant, you're going to be brilliant, and the others were told like you're really not cut out for exercise. Like don't expect much. Um, so that changed, like the endurance on the treadmill, like it did have an immediate effect on performance. But um, but actually, then it changed the physiological measures too. So actually, if you expected to um have this like great version of the gene, it actually changed the efficiency of the gas exchange. So you know that's kind of incredible. Also, things like the efficiency of their movement seem to have been different. Um, but what's even more incredible to me was actually. They then compared the size of the expectation effect to the size of the actual genetic effect, and often the the expectations were having more of an effect than the genes itself, so whether you think you're cut out for exercise is probably more important than the kind of genome you were born with wild what did you you looked at Michael Phelps for some reason? yeah, what did you learn from him um so he um he'd always said like he didn't think like his secret was like in his body, but it was more like in his um, amazing ability to visualize exercise. So like, in addition to doing all of the physical training, he would like imagine every race in like minute detail, all of the turns, like every twist of his body he would plan out. Um, And then he, he said it was like his visualization was so good that when he actually got into the pool, it was almost as if he'd done like an extra kind of training practice. Um, And then, so that's like really intriguing, but it's kind of anecdotal. But then actually this scientific research shows that um, visualising exercise can be really powerful on its own. So there's like this study, um, they just got people to kind of imagine like lifting heavy objects every day for six weeks. Um, They weren't actually doing any weightlifting, they were just imagining it. Um, And then like compared to the beginning of that period, they were like 10% stronger. um, Compared to participants who hadn't done any kind of Imaginary lifting at all, and they were actually a bit weaker. Um, It sounds incredible, and like I think it's important to emphasize here that, like, the scientists aren't claiming that it was actually building the muscles themselves, like, they didn't have more kind of muscle mass. But what the brain was doing was kind of recalibrating what it thought the muscles could achieve, and then that was causing it to uh, recruit more muscle fibers. So, when we exercise, actually, even if we're like really exerting ourselves, we only recruit about 50 like 50 percent of our muscle fibers that's to kind of stop us from exhausting ourselves and giving us like more energy reserves if we need it later um probably when they were doing this visualization exercise it was just persuading the brain to maybe recruit a few more of those muscle fibers which then made them like physically stronger even though they didn't have bigger muscles
0: a big chunk of what people are doing when they train in the gym is drilling that cns right getting the yeah. they're called movement engrams making sure that you're moving efficiently that you're doing things right and <clears throat> i remember hearing about i i, I ruptured my Achilles uh, a year and a half ago and my doctor had said to me look throughout the process of this before you can get on to doing calf raises you can restrict the atrophy that you're going to get in your calf if you imagine mm. yourself doing calf raises so mm. although it was difficult for me to do cuz there's the only thing more boring than doing calf raises is only imagining that you're doing calf raises. But uh, I would would do a little working set uh, on the days that I could be bothered where I would imagine that I was doing that. I have no idea whether or not it had an impact, but at least it seems like, you know, that um, atrophy of the CNS would have probably been downregulated.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's like, um, I mean, like that's really where this, where this kind of technique is so promising is for rehabilitation like you know like when people break limbs like they do experience a lot of like um strength loss um and then this research has shown that they can kind of cut the amount of strength that they lose by about 50 percent if they imagine doing the exercises so it's like you know it's just helping them to it's like giving them a head start when they do get back to kind of doing
0: their normal workouts what did you look at to do with sleep
1: um, yeah, this was totally fascinating to me. So, um like scientists can just like get people into this um into their labs and get them to sleep for a night, and they can measure like the brain activity to see if they've actually been asleep or if it's been really disturbed. Um, and then you get people to kind of report how much sleep they had. And in general, people's subjective uh, assessment of their sleep is just really poor. So, like almost everyone like over or underestimates how much they've slept um so you get this group who are like the uh complaining good sleepers so they sleep like eight hours a night you know no problem there at all but they might i guess you know they wake up like in the middle of the night for like a couple of minutes but in their head it was like they were awake for hours and they are totally convinced that they're going to have some the effects of insomnia the next day um, and what you can see is that that becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. So they suffer from like poor concentration, you know, fatigue, irritability, all of these things just because of their expectations, not because they've suffered any kind of sleep loss.
0: And the reverse presumably as well for the people who undersleep but convince themselves that they've probably done okay
1: yeah the non-complaining bad sleepers are the total opposite so they actually don't have any of the effects of insomnia not even like things like uh, high blood pressure which often comes from bad sleep loss um they're just completely immune to all of that um so i I actually kind of personally identify with that like i i do think like i do have disrupted sleep but i also just like try to focus on the on how much sleep i have got because i know that like you know, even if it feels quite disturbed, like if you're just kind of lying there dozing, that's better than like not getting any sleep at all. And yeah, so I don't get like a bad like effects of insomnia. Whereas like my partner's the total opposite. Like he will like, he sleeps for like nine hours a night. But if he wakes up once, he will be like in a really bad mood the next day.
0: Did you look at people who consider themselves or or think that they're not going to get to sleep very easily? And people a lot everyone's familiar with this. You've got a big event tomorrow or you're going away on holiday and the flight's early, so you get to bed a little bit earlier than usual and you end up falling asleep three hours after your usual bedtime, lying awake in bed thinking I need to get to sleep. I'm gonna guess yeah. that the expectation effect must Why oh, oh, are you expecting to go to sleep? I guess that you're fulfilling the prophecy of fearing that you won't. Yeah, that's
1: exactly it. It's like you're raising the anxiety that you won't. And then when you're not getting to sleep, you're kind of um Kind of catastrophizing that and focusing on all of the kind of bad effects that are going to arise from that sleep loss. Um, so yeah, that's like I mean it is you know I've experienced that a lot and it's like a terrible thing. But actually counterintuitively, the best way to avoid that is to try to stay awake. Um, if you're, you're just like <laughs> if you're just like well I'm not going to sleep, so I'm just going to like stay awake here and like you will yourself to stay awake. You kind of cut through all of that anxiety and ironically, then you get to sleep like more quickly so
0: (laughs) yeah that's interesting what about aging then you said at the start that the expectation effect can reduce life by seven years yeah yeah exactly so
1: um researchers in the u.s kind of looked at these huge like longitudinal studies so tracking people's kind of lives from you know like their teenage years right to their kind of deaths in their 70s and 80s um And at some point in that, you know, like in their 30s, they kind of measured, like, their expectations of what was going to happen as they got older. So they asked them, you know, is it going to be a time of decline and disability? Are you going to kind of lose your independence? Or do you see it as this kind of time of growth, you know, time of wisdom? Like, you know, they weren't kind of asking them, like, do you deny that there's any problems that come with ageing? But just some people kind of see the good as well as the bad. Um, And they found that those... um, those uh, kind of views that people had in midlife then predicted how long they would live by um, a difference of about seven and a half years. So, like, big difference in longevity. Um, and then later Do you know how studies, big the study was? Yeah, that would have been thousands of participants. Oh, so this uh, is a really yeah.
0: representative sample.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it's been, like, repeated again and again with loads of different samples. And they found the expectations of ageing can predict things like... Um, like your risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. Like if you have a, the positive use, it cuts your risk of Alzheimer's by about 50%. Even if you have the genetic predisposition to get Alzheimer's, it still cuts it by
0: 50%. Mate, this is wild.
1: This yeah. is so crazy. So I was like totally skeptical of that. Um but then, you know, like we were saying, like the studies were well conducted and they were like big numbers. Um And then the scientists have also kind of joined the dots to kind of find the mechanism for how that would happen. Um, And so like one is just kind of behavioural. It's like if you're defeatist about getting old, you're not going to do so much exercise. You're not going to look after your health. You know, that's going to have an effect. Um, But there's also a kind of physiological effect here, too. And that's like if you feel vulnerable as you get old, um, every challenge in your life is going to feel like super stressful. So that's going to raise like levels of cortisol, um, it raises levels of like inflammation. We know that both of those things can cause bodily wear and tear. And then you can see the effects right down to kind of differences within the cells themselves. So it kind of, um, the people with the negative effects have like shorter telomeres, like like you, I I'm, know I'm, you know this, but yeah, like those protective caps that kind of Uh, protect our dna from kind of damage um and the kind of epigenetic markers within their cells um it's like the cells are just ticking at like a quicker rate if you have the negative beliefs compared to the positive beliefs
0: why do you think that this effect exists so there's some uh mechanistic elements of this right like you said the person and this is not just for aging but for the the, the whole effect yeah. overall i'm trying to work out why this is adaptive i'm trying to work out why it's so universal why it seems to work across like, a million different mechanisms why have we got this
1: yeah i mean it's like um I think it's like just so fundamental to how the brain works. Um, And what it does is it gives us kind of flexibility. Um, So there's like this new idea in kind of the study of consciousness that the brain works as this kind of prediction machine. So it's always like building simulations of what's going on around us. um, That helps us to kind of process the sensory data. Um, But also just as importantly, it's kind of, um, it's allowing the brain to kind of prepare the body for the challenges that we're going to face. So you know, just like adjusting the levels of your hormones, like so that, if you're going to face like a kind of danger, like you're kind of pumped up and like physically ready to attend to the threat. And, you know, your psychology is going to change as well. So that you um, are kind of more on the ball and like, uh, more capable of kind of, of like focusing on the danger and not kind of thinking about other stuff, like not being too dozy. Um, So it's actually this prediction machine is giving us a lot of flexibility, it's allowing us to respond like, second by second to what's going on around us. Um, the thing is, like those predictions, like sometimes it's purely based on things like the context of the situation that you're in, um, or you know, like how much you've eaten, how much you have slept, you know, like, there's definitely like an objective element to that, that the body's kind of getting from all of its kind of senses, like, within the body and like on the skin. Um but also it's just drawing on all of its previous experiences to kind of calibrate those predictions. Um, And that's where like our conscious thinking and like our expectations and our interpretations of the events, like like the way we kind of choose to frame them,
0: that's shaping the
1: predictions and then it's shaping how the body responds as well.
0: What do you see as the difference between creating a positive expectation and being delusional?
1: Mm, Yeah, I mean, that's something like I really wanted to get clear um, in my book, because it's like, um, so much of the positive thinking literature is kind of about being delusional in a way. So it's like, you know, we were talking about like your expectations at the gym, like, if someone is like a real couch potato, like going to the gym and telling themselves that they're like an Olympic athlete, it's only going to lead to disappointment. Like, you cannot be that delusional that you're really going to fool yourself. So I think like, it's really important to set like realistic expectations even if you're improving your expectations it's like always trying to be kind of honest to yourself and authentic um so like at the gym like i think like don't tell yourself you're going to be you know like a world-class athlete straight away but like just reinterpret those feelings that you're having at the gym like if you're being like overly negative about like the fatigue that you're feeling and you're kind of catastrophizing that and you're telling yourself that there's something like fundamentally wrong with your body like, you just need to reappraise those feelings and actually look at it much more objectively and, and kind of just tell yourself that actually, if you're feeling fatigued, like that is not only normal, but it's desirable. It's like you with fasting, it's like you're telling yourself that, yeah, like I'm hungry, but that is why I'm doing this. Like, it's what I'm, I'm, I'm here for, yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. So, I think that's how we want to reframe our feelings is just to be and our expectations is just to kind of, yeah, to be honest and to just like avoid catastrophizing stuff when actually we can just see it in a more positive
0: light so the you've got the proximal zone of development for skill acquisition yeah. and we've got the proximal zone of expectation for the expectation effect not too far yeah. not too little certainly not yeah. negative
1: yeah exactly i love that yeah it definitely has to be a kind of proximal zone and actually like if we look at the expectation effect around like stress and anxiety like it's exactly what you're describing there In that like um our culture has always been like really down on anxiety and seeing it as being like purely kind of detrimental to your performance and debilitating. Um, but actually the science shows us that, you know, those stress responses can be really useful and adaptive. Like, you know, cortisol is kind of sharpening your mind. It's actually helping you to release kind of glucose into your blood. When your heart is pumping, like that can, like really hard, that can feel quite uncomfortable. Um, but it's actually like getting all the oxygen around your body into your brain so it's like preparing you for like a big challenge um and what the scientists like they kind of told some people like suppress your feelings like just you know tell yourself i'm calm not anxious and they told the other people just like um just accept your anxiety but recognize that it might be having these benefits and that you actually evolved to feel this for a reason and then they got them to do things like difficult public speaking or like um doing like a tough kind of graduate exam. And they found that actually, the kind of honest reappraisal of the feelings like not suppressing them, but just like, reinterpreting what they meant. And like, just questioning, like, are they actually detrimental? Or could they be useful, that that in itself was enough to improve their performance, um, you know, on the public speaking on the exam, kind of making them more creative, like improving their numerical skills, um, reducing their anxiety, and it also just helped them to kind of recover from the anxiety afterwards. So you know, like if you've had like a stressful event, like sometimes you can just feel exhausted for like the whole day afterwards, like you're, you're still kind of charged. Um, but for these people, they weren't, they just went back to like, the normal life, you know, like, their body started like digesting their food properly again, you know, their heart rate returned to normal. Um, and that's really important for like, the long term effects of stress. Because if you can, if you have like a momentary like feeling of stress, but then like recover quickly afterwards, that's not so damaging for your body in the long term.
0: It's the chronic stress that we're seeing that's super, super damaging to people. I have a, yeah. a friend, comedian Bridget Phetasy, and she still gets very, very nervous before she goes on stage. And she's got a little mantra that she says to herself. She says, I'm not nervous, I'm excited. I'm not nervous, I'm mm. excited. I'm not nervous, I'm excited. And I have, an, <laughs> I have another friend, uh, very well-known DJ who frequently throws up before he goes to do a set because that's how much he cares because the nerves are in there. Um, and he now, he's now told me that if he doesn't throw up before a set, he gets concerned. He's more <laughs> concerned if he doesn't vomit before he goes on than he does because he's not sure if he's in the zone.
1: well, I mean that is extreme, but I totally can identify with that, and it's like um, like you're saying about kind of I'm not nervous, I'm excited because like, the what's happening in your body is like so similar like they're actually indistinguishable, like excitement and very much the
0: story that you're telling yourself that is determining whether it is nerves or excitement.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think for most people, it's a kind of combination, like you're kind of anxious, but you're also excited, both, you're feeling both of those things, because it's important to you. And it's almost just kind of recognizing that fact that like, you're doing this for a purpose, like, most often people aren't forcing you to do this. You're doing it because you're ambitious or because you love to entertain or whatever. And just recognising that fact that you're kind of feeling these things for a reason, that can be really powerful. What was that
0: study to do with people pretending to be fighter pilots?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. So this was to improve, like, vision, which is kind of crazy. Um, yeah. So they took, like, people with kind of normal vision and some people who are a bit kind of short-sighted um, And they just kind of told them to pretend that you're a proper fighter pilot. So they gave them a a sight test, first of all, and then put them in this, you know, hyper-realistic kind of flight simulation. And while they were doing that simulation, they had to kind of read off some codes from the wings of the planes that they were kind of flying around. Um, And what they found was that the people who were doing that kind of hyper-realistic simulation that they actually like their eyesight physically improved. So they were able to see characters that were much smaller than they had been able to see on the kind of real sight test. Um, and then they repeated this experiment in other settings that they, one of them was just like, they took the normal sight test, but you know, it goes from like big letters to small, they just reversed it. Um, and the idea there was that we have this kind of association that the further down the test you go, the harder it is to see, but at the top you should be able to see. And again, they, were able to distinguish characters that they hadn't been able to see before
0: you looked at willpower as well and i'd heard this i'd seen a story to do with was it roy baumeister that did the original willpower degradation studies yeah yeah so i remember seeing uh how would you say a prelude to the expectation effect a few years ago when i was reading about the fact that um What's it, it's not willpower degradation. What's it called? Um, ego depletion. Ego depletion, that's it. Um, ego depletion seems to be present only in the people that know about ego depletion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so tell it. what's the red pill that people need to understand about willpower?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is totally upper expectation effect. Um, so yeah, what's interesting is that in Western culture as a whole, we've kind of had this assumption that like um, when you practice kind of mental focus or kind of um self control like when you're resisting temptation that that is tiring and that it's going to the more you do it like the harder it's going to be essentially so you know and that's exactly what people like Roy Baumeister heard uh recorded you know like it's it is like a muscle that you're kind of tiring out and the longer you do it like the more likely you are to kind of lose your focus or um uh, give in to temptation um but then they did some studies in india where people don't share that cultural belief so actually in india it's much more common for people to think that like willpower is self uh, perpetuating um it's almost like they think like once you get into the zone it's like easier to kind of continue practicing your willpower it's uh, yeah it's like uh which is equally plausible bit, uh, yeah totally yeah it's just like anything like um once you get into the kind of momentum going it kind of can continue um and so then they did the ego depletion experiments with those people and they found the total opposite actually like um they didn't experience ego depletion at all their willpower did indeed increase. increase the more they practiced it so their focus was much better on a second task compared to the first task because i'd had this time to kind of warm up um so that was really strong evidence that like Yeah, it's totally due to our underlying beliefs about what's going to happen to the brain. It's purely an expectation effect. There's no kind of biological cause for ego depletion.
0: Does knowing about the expectation effect or the placebo effect change the effect of it? Because I don't know if we have created an information hazard for everybody who's listening now that could have blissfully stumbled upon the expectation effect and benefited from it, but now they know the fact that it's only a blah, blah.
1: No, yeah, I mean... the. Great thing is, it's actually the opposite, like um, knowing about the expectation effect can actually make it more powerful in some way. And so we know this from studies of placebos. So like in a typical placebo experiment, you give someone a painkiller, uh, you give someone a dummy pill, but you tell them it's a painkiller. So it's like you have to be deceptive. Um, but then scientists started like wondering, well, what happens if we actually just give people a jar of placebo pills? labelled as like placebo pills take two a day, can that actually improve their pain just as well as the uh, kind of surreptitious placebos? Um, And they found that actually it can. So in this study from Portugal, they were looking at people with chronic pain, they gave them um, these pills, and they also gave gave them this kind of explanation of the expectation effect. So just a kind of grounding in like what happens with the mind-body connection, how the brain can produce its own painkillers, you know, all of that information. And then they just gave people these pills and told them to kind of take them twice a day. And they were really clear, like, you must take the pills, even though they're dummy pills. Um, Then five days later, they had seen a reduction in their symptoms already. There was about 30% um, on the kind of standard score of pain. So that's the clinical threshold for any new treatment. Like if a treatment's effective, you have to have a 30% reduction. And these people were experiencing that from open-label placebos bottle it sell it yeah exactly we need we need more and actually you can buy like placebo pills on amazon so uh like it's already available if you want it um but actually like you know that's fine like and if i had chronic pain i probably would take like open-label placebos but actually there's just loads of other ways you can like um increase expectations without kind of the sham treatments in medicine so you know just like giving people psychological therapy where you kind of explain the importance of expectations and then so if they've had heart surgery you kind of just help them to kind of set out a kind of framework for like how they hope they will improve over the next 6 months that can also bring about this kind of placebo like response so you still see kind of improvements in like biological measures like the level of inflammation that they're experiencing after the operation how quickly they leave hospital you know, how quickly they return to work. All of that just through honestly helping people to change their expectations.
0: Wasn't there something to do with medicines where um, people began to use genuine medicines and then they were either weaned off or the dose got reduced or something? Because I imagine that must be, let's say that you have a a drug that's got a a relatively toxic side effect perhaps or there's a reason Mm -hmm. why you wouldn't want to be on it longer term. Um, you introduce it you taper it down that would be you get both sides right you've been introduced to the experience you've got that um, set and setting almost and then you you dial it back and and people still get to benefit
1: yeah I mean that's a really big hope for like treating opioid addiction essentially so there have been studies looking at um, kind of people in rehab from like um, terrible injuries and like you do start out by giving them an opioid drug but very quickly you kind of you give them the drug and then you give them the placebo pill as well. So they take both together. And you can strengthen it even further by kind of associating both with like a really strong smell. So like the smell of cardamom, for example. So so you'd have like you'd sniff the cardamom and you take the placebo and you take the drug. And then after a few days, you just stop or encourage them. You don't force them, but you encourage them. Like You don't need to take the drug anymore. Just take the placebo pill and the Sniff smell. Sniff the cardamom, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this exactly. is like a
0: Pavlovian, yeah. like, uh, Pavlovian weaning.
1: Yeah, it's exactly that. And then what happens is the brain is already responding. It's been conditioned then um, to produce its own opioids and at a much higher level than it would without the conditioning response. And so that can really reduce like the amount of the active drugs that people take. And there have been like case studies where people have completely weaned themselves off the opioids like quite quickly just by using this technique. What was the thing to do with peanut allergies? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's one of my favorite studies. Cause I think it, again, it shows just how we're like, we're talking about honestly reframing stuff rather than like being delusional. Um, so like when kids have peanut allergies, you can actually train the immune system to stop responding uh, to the peanut protein and it's just like exposure therapy so you start off with like a tiny dose of the protein and then you build up over six months to hold peanuts so by the end you know if a kid is at a party and they accidentally eat like a snickers bar or whatever they're not going to be in danger having eaten that because they've trained their body to deal with it um but when when the kids do this therapy it's like really uncomfortable you know because the body is starting to have like a mild allergic reaction as they increase the doses so they get hives you know uncomfortable feelings in their mouths, they might feel sick, and you know, all of these things that are frightening and kind of seem to be putting them in danger. And the researchers like just try to get them to reinterpret how they saw those, uh, that discomfort. So they just said, this is rather than being dangerous, this is actually a sign that the treatment is being effective. It's like, in the same way, when you're doing strength training, your muscles are gonna start aching. Like, you know, this is a sign that you're stimulating the immune system and it's kind of learning and responding. Um, So at the end of the trial, those uh, patients had had that kind of training and reframing. They just reported fewer side effects um, overall. So it had reduced their discomfort. But like even more impressively, like it had also changed the uh, efficacy of the treatment so those kids were actually showing high levels of this like friendly antibody that can protect them from the like overall like noxious um allergic reaction. It kind of just stops the immune system from overreacting. And they had much higher levels than the kids who who hadn't learned to reframe the symptoms in that way.
0: Have you considered whether or not this in part accounts for some of the side effects we've seen with the recent vaccine rollout and the fact that people have I mean, has there ever been as widespread of a medication with as many uh, disputed, disputable side effects and then people reporting them and all sorts of stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, totally. It definitely has had an effect. Like, um, And, you know, like, I think on social media, you could see everyone kind of sharing their kind of war stories about having the vaccine and then, like, being knocked out for a couple of days or, you know, having a bad headache or whatever. So, it was very much like contagious, these expectations. Um, So the studies so far showed that actually, you know, these vaccines are quite, they definitely stimulate the immune system. So they do cause like for some people, about 25% of people, they do lead to those kinds of um, uh, mild side effects. So things like fatigue, maybe having a bit of a fever, having a headache, you know, that's all kind of to be expected for like half, uh, for 25% of the people having the vaccines. But actually in the um, in the trials, you saw that the people receiving the placebo injections were also um, quite likely to have those side effects too. So about half as many people had those side effects in the placebo trials. So we know from that that, yeah, like the vaccines themselves were causing some of these like um, slightly uncomfortable side effects but the expectations were causing it for a a large number of people too.
0: And there was that thing at Gatwick airport, which I remember from a few years ago, where it was all over the press and the entire airport was shut down and people were saying that there was drones absolutely everywhere, but you reckon that might be an expectation effect as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was, so yeah, like in 2018, you know, I think just one person reported a drone and then like within a couple of days, like hundreds of people said they'd seen them. Um, but, like the police and the army were using like you know radar, <laughs> like they were you know using all their technology to kind of detect where these drones were, and like they couldn't find a single one, and no one took a photo of a drone that could be verified
0: that's it. there was no footage, it didn't appear yeah. on any radar, it wasn't on any of the equipment, and yet you had this cascade of reports coming in,
1: yeah, so it just seems like it was yeah, like a contagious expectation effect, and so we know that the expectations can shape perceptions and that it's like it was priming people to see a drone when like there was nothing in the sky
0: this would be interesting to look at if there was a similar sort of event happening again what you would presumably expect in terms of the number of reports would be like a normal distribution curve Mm. so you would have one a few a few more a few more a few more a peak and then it would begin to tail off i wonder if you mapped those onto a yeah. distribution about whether or not it would come back like that. That would be interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think anecdotally, from what the police had reported, it did seem like that with Gatwick, and that you did start out with just one, and then within a couple of hours, there was maybe another person seen it. But then as it kind of got into the media, you know, and was spread around the airport, like, yeah, you saw rapid increase. And, like, there can't have been that many drones around. Like, it would have just been impossible. So, I mean you can never rule out the possibility that maybe the first report was genuine, but definitely like the airport didn't need to be closed for like three days and like disrupt all of those holidays. Like, yeah.
0: One thing that you said earlier is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is this sort of culture of generalized cynicism that we've got at the moment. And when you realize you, you are right, there's something people think of it as more rational more cool almost to be cynical and and sort of blunt about most things you see this like in its extreme on the internet no one is excitable on the internet everyone's playing right. like a Louis Theroux persona um and yeah when you think about the fact that that cynicism and the sort of public messaging that we have and then the social, me- like top-down public messaging and then the bottom-up social messaging that people see literally could be making people more sick, more fat, less healthy, stupider with side effects from, you know, it's everything. Cynicism cynicism genuinely is kind of like a disease or a virus.
1: Yeah, it totally is. And, like, what really annoys me is it's like um, if you're being, like, like people think it's like super smart to be skeptical but actually being reflexively skeptical and just not believing anything good like to me that is like just as bad as oh, being Oh it's just as stupid yeah, yeah yeah exactly as being totally gullible it's like you're doing exactly the same thing it's just you're taking the opposite viewpoint um so yeah that drives me crazy and especially like i see it a lot with like um you know, like as a science writer, like amongst my colleagues, actually, it's kind of quite fashionable to always be like super skeptical of any new and exciting result. But it's like that's not that's not being like a better journalist or like a more skeptical thinker. That's actually just like kind of virtue signaling almost, or yeah, like trying to prove your intelligence without applying your intelligence.
0: The programming is just as simplistic. It's just moving in the opposite direction. You haven't thought about it either. You haven't considered it either. You're just yeah. taking a heterodox position in the hopes that this makes you seem cool and so what about the ethics then do you think that there's an ethical concern around deceiving somebody or deceiving other people even if it's in the service of making their outcomes in life better
1: yeah no, i do see it as like a big ethical issue to like um deceive people um and i think like in medicine you know like um it's why these open label placebos like the honest placebos are so important because I think if you start deceiving patients um, and then they find out they've been deceived um, then they're going to lose like a lot of faith in the medical profession. And then that's going to cause like problems further down the line. So I think we have to like, you just have to be honest for like the ethical reasons. But then I actually think like when we know that you can apply the expectation effect, honestly without any kind of problems anyway, like there's no need to be deceptive really like you, It is enough often just like in so many of these studies, it's enough just to kind of like tell people about the science Like you just give them like a kind of, you know, popular science article that kind of explains how like stress can be beneficial to you or, you know, how you can reframe the feelings of uh, exercise and that that can improve your performance. Like, you know, very kind of plain, like not deceptive at all. Just that information is enough. Like the knowledge is power in these cases. So, yeah, I don't think we need to worry about deception anymore.
0: Are there any effects that run counter to the expectation effect? Are there any things that you found I think you mentioned something to do with uh constantly following happiness as a uh, actually can make people less happy, which seems to kind of run in the opposite direction. Were there any others?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a, that's the main one, I think. And yeah, it's kind of like it makes sense. I mean, so it's like counterintuitive, but it's like if you're um always trying to be happy, like The kind of converse of that is that you're actually then like demonizing the negative feelings you might be having or the uncomfortable feelings you might be having so it kind of is like um an expectation effect and that it's like if you want to be so happy that you think that anytime you feel frustration or anxiety it's a disaster you're kind of then setting yourself up to like experience those emotions um A lot more negatively and to kind of for them to have a bigger impact on your life um but yeah it is i think like the simplistic view of the expectation effect would just be it's like tell yourself to be happy and you will be happy but yeah that doesn't happen um so yeah i think we have to be careful to kind of have the to kind of outline the limits of the expectation effect and the nuances it's not always as simple as just kind of hoping for the best you know um i also just think we have to be honest about the fact that like say in medicine, like, say you've got, like, a terminal illness, or, you know, like, just improving your expectations isn't going to help you to get better. Like, sometimes the expectation effect just, there's no physiological mechanism by which it could help you to, to kind of benefit from the expectation effect, essentially. So we we just have to be careful, to be honest, about kind of when it does work, and when, like, you're not going to expect to see, like, the full
0: benefit. Is one of the most important things here um, information or people's understanding or knowledge around whatever the experience is that they're going through? So for instance, um, talking about going to the gym, the understanding that one of the byproducts of going to the gym is going to be you sweating and you lifting, you, you feeling aches in your muscles and stuff like that. That knowledge enables the reframing, right? My point is, is there a – it seems like one of the first steps to becoming effective at the expectation effect is a, a degree of understanding or knowledge around the specifics of whatever it is that you're trying to get the effect to work on. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it totally is. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, yeah, with like exercise, it helps for you to understand like the exercise physiology there and to understand why you're feeling these things because otherwise it's really easy for you to be like – um to catastrophize those feelings if you don't understand the science of kind of why they might be beneficial to you. The same with stress, like you feel the discomfort. And if you don't understand, like some of the basics of the science of like, why we have the cortisol uh, spike at all, then yeah, all you're going to focus on is the negative feelings, and not necessarily on how, why it might be useful. So yeah, I, I really do think actually it's like just a bit of scientific literacy in all of these areas can go a long way to helping you to reframe your expectations.
0: That's one part of it, right? What yeah. I, what I want to try and get out of you is what are the common strategies if people want to effectively apply the expectation effect. Which aren't contingent on specific knowledge about the thing that they're trying to to use it on, you know, mm. reframing and all of that stuff. What are your what's the the best framework that you've come up with that people can take away?
1: Mm, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some things that I think you can do. But like whatever challenge you're facing, it's they're going to help you to form better or more objective expectations. Um, and my favorite one is really this process called. Like self distancing. And so it was developed by Ethan Cross at the University of Michigan, kind of independently from the expectation effect. But what he had noticed is that if you, the way you talk to yourself is often really different from the way you would talk to a friend. So you're much more self critical and much more negative when you talk to yourself compared to if you're advising someone who's in exactly the same position. Um, and so his solution to that is just to imagine that you're advising your friend, like when you're talking to yourself, and you can even use like the third person kind of language so you can be like, I could be like, uh, you know, it sounds stupid, it sounds like Elmo from Sesame Street or whatever, but it could be like, um, uh, you know, like, <laughs> David's worried about, I don't know, like, um, getting older, David feels that he, he's going to be like vulnerable and, you know, get, suffer from decline, you know, all of that. Um, but the fact is like if you were talking to yourself you might be like look in the mirror see some wrinkles and be like oh god I look hideous this is awful like it's only going to get worse if you were talking to your friend like you would be like no you're still fine like um there's still lots to look forward to like you know don't be so defeatist like you can still grow you can still like there's still stuff that you can do and achieve like as you're getting older um and so yeah I think that's just something that I found super helpful like whenever I am kind of wrestling with like needlessly negative expectations is just to kind of shift perspective and think like would I actually talk to other people and and like tell them the things that I'm telling
0: myself and that's use the third person with an inner monologue and also imagine that you were saying it to somebody else
1: yeah exactly and treat yourself with the kind of compassion that you would treat someone else basically so
0: David this is great now, this is a really, really cool effect. I'm very, very glad that you've written the book. If people want to see what you do, where should they go online?
1: Uh, so my website is davidrobson.me. Um, I'm D underscore A underscore Robson on Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, yeah. But I mean, basically Twitter or my website are the best place.
0: Dude, I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Cool, yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks. How wild is that? It's not just me that's had my mind blown by that, right? That is the most crazy insight around how our intentions and expectations can impact anything that we care about. I really, really hope that you enjoyed it. I did. I've been gushing about this episode all week. And if you did enjoy it, then share it with a friend. I'm sure they're going to find it interesting or useful or insightful as well. Don't forget that you can get a 30% discount on your at home testosterone tet-, tet your at-home testosterone test by going to trylgc.com slash modern and use the code modern30 at checkout. You can get a 15% discount on Crafted London's jewelry at bit.ly slash CDWisdom and the code MW15 at checkout. And you can get a 37% discount or greater on everything site-wide from MyProtein, whether you're in the US or the UK or anywhere else, by going to bit.ly proteinwisdom and the code modernwisdom at checkout. I'll see you next time.